This is the Future of Security Operations podcast brought to you by Tynes. This show is dedicated to empowering SecOps leaders to reimagine how their teams work so they can scale their security efforts and build a team that achieves more with less. In each episode, we'll learn from a security leader who has found a way to free their team from tedious manual tasks and remove the barriers that are preventing them from doing high value strategic work that truly matters. We'll learn from their mistakes, distill their best practices, and leave you with actionable insights that you can immediately put to work with your team. I'm your host, Thomas Kinsler, COO and co-founder of Tynes. Now, let's jump right into today's show. Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Security Operations podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Aaron Cooper. Aaron is a 25-year security veteran with roles in Kaiser, Gap, Wells Fargo, Palo Alto, and most recently Trip Actions, a corporate travel management, corporate card, and expense management company where he was the SOC manager. It's great to have you on the podcast today, Aaron. Thank you. I'm really excited about being here. Before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you ended up to where you are today? Well, that's a really good question, Thomas. Thanks for asking. I started in the IT industry back in 1997, back when we really didn't have so much of a security role. And I was just getting out of college. I was finishing up my bachelor's as a uh, psychology major, and I was planning on getting my master's in psychology. And I I really came to the conclusion this probably wasn't right for me. So I went to my uncle, got a scholarship to get an MCSE. You remember that certification back in the day, I think it still exists. And I started becoming a Microsoft Systems Administrator for a number of dot-coms. Uh, the biggest one was iMotors, and they all kind of went under. I suffered that dot-com shuffle. After that, I went to work for a company called Remedy, the ticketing system, and I started focusing my attention on being their security engineer. And once again, that role didn't exist, and it didn't exist for many organizations at the time. But I started looking at you know firewalls, and I had got my Cisco certification. So I was really into networking. Voice over IP was becoming in vogue at the time. But I started looking at firewalls and, and Microsoft proxy and, and started focusing my attention over there. And I think that was really the right thing to do because at that time is when we started to get offshore uh, competition for IT jobs. And you know the American workforce was losing that, that effort. So I started focusing more on security at, at that point. Went over to Wells Fargo, became a firewall engineer there, had a very good experience there, and then started doing the same sort of work uh, for Kaiser, doing network design, security architecture, and firewall engineering as, as the primary role. And then, you know, after that, I went over to The Gap and had a really good experience in retail and how retail works, building their networks, building their environment, doing a lot of design work in the firewall engineering there as well. And I quickly found myself in the role of the team lead and operations manager, if you will, for The Gap. And that's where I really honed my skills in that architecture and building that and working with the first sim at that that I was involved with at the time, which was Curator, which is still one of my favorites. Really fantastic product. And then I went over to Palo Alto Networks, which was, wow. I mean, if you want to talk about an organization with some of the best security engineering and the best talent, I would start there at Palo Alto Networks. They're just, they hire the, just the best people. And it was a wonderful experience from there. Went over, I tried to do more management work. And so I went over to a company that does one of the largest skincare manufacturers in, in the United States called Rodan and Fields. And then after that, I moved over to Roku, which was a great organization as well. And then I found myself at Trip Actions, once again, building, architecting, and managing the security operations center. So that's where I started, have the whole gambit of, of experience. It's an incredible career. And I love that you speak so positively about pretty much every step in the way. That's not, it's great, but it's not always the case of every security engineer. There's a lot of people have, you know, had some, some harder steps along the way. 
you've worked in from hardware to a vendor to healthcare to banking to now like a cloud first tech company in trip options. How does it differ among those? Like, how does the security posture differ? Have you found the challenges different in the different industries and the different companies? There are two ways to answer that. The first thing I want to say is right now we're in a period of incredible transition as we're moving away. And I should say have moved away from our traditional data center model into the cloud. And you, anyone who's listening to this really should focus your attention and your skill set on learning cloud engineering, learning cloud technologies, whether it's GCP, Azure, AWS, which I think if you're going to choose one, choose AWS right now, just because their footprint's larger and more people are using it. But that's the biggest thing and the biggest change that you really have to be aware of, that things are changing very, very quickly and the cloud is where it is. And, and I don't see any change from that momentum going forward anytime soon. It really is where you need to focus your skills on. And the second way I would answer that, and this is something that a lot of people will find success in, is understanding the culture of the organization you're moving into. From a security operation or any security role, I've seen a lot of people fail in their position because they don't understand the culture of the executive staff and what they want to trickle down to the rest of the organization. So I've had you know managers that want to engage human resources for what I believe to be a benign or even accidental security breach. Not a breach, but even like an event, okay? And that's just not what the executive staff wants to do. And you know that manager would fail in that role and, and move on. So when you're looking at whether it be retail, financial, and healthcare especially, you consider that. Consider what the organization culture is and then also consider what the risks are, right? So within the risk of working for Kaiser Permanente, if you do something wrong, if you're lax, if you're not following through, people could die, right? If there's a breach in an organization, people could absolutely die. Wells Fargo, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars could be lost. The gap, you know, maybe you could shut down a distribution center or shut down a store. It's a horrible thing, but it's not as horrible as working in, in the other organizations that these things can happen. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what you kind of need to understand coming from the other side around what could happen, where the company wants to go and, and how they want you to respond to certain events. Yeah, super interesting. And like, it obviously does depend massively on their risk tolerance and the risk posture. And yeah, the stakes are definitely higher. How do you think that has affected their purchasing strategy, their tool strategy, their resourcing strategy for security? Do they like staff up more? Or do they lock things down? How do they compare to yet yeah, to a more cloud forward company like Trip Actions, I suppose? That's a good question as well. And I have some unfortunate answers for you. And yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, the correct answer is they don't until something goes wrong. And we all know this, right? The best way to get the funding you need to get the tools you need and the workforce that you need is for something to go wrong. Now, Believe it or not, in my opinion, what we saw from an executive standpoint with the uh, Home Depot and Target breaches was a godsend. And it sounds a terrible thing to say, I understand that, but because of what we saw to the careers of the executive staff that were responsible for both those breaches, other executives started to take notice and say, this can't happen here, right? If this were to happen to the gap, then you know we could actually go under. If this were to happen to Kaiser Permanente, we could have, you know, people will suffer. And so that is sort of how we, the best approach for looking at how to get the tools and and resources that you need. It's particularly hard in finance because you're just a cost center in finance. The security team and even the IT team, we don't bring any money into it. So when you look at the highest echelons of the financial industry, they just see you as something that you need to do to check the box and do as little as possible and spend as little money as possible. And that was always a challenge for us. Regulations, whether it be federal, PCI, whatever, helped a lot, but that was always a big issue for us. And that was more so 15 years ago. Now I think people 
really understand we need to get this done from the get-go. So Trip Actions, as a good example, as from nearly the beginning, they had a security team as part of the organization. And they brought me in relatively early after you know, COVID started to ease. Hey, you're going to manage this, build and manage a security operations center because here's where we want to be. And they will throw the money and tools at them. So it was very pleasing to see that. And I think that just goes to say the evolution of the executive mindset has changed very much so in the last 15 years. Yeah, they have to move very fast as well. You have to, all of a sudden, security is a non-negotiable part of business for right. these. If you want to start yeah, dealing, especially for, as you say, in regulated industries, if you're dealing with credit cards or dealing with healthcare, yeah, it's unacceptable anymore to not have good security. Can I ask, you've obviously been really lucky to be able to grow with all these companies, take on more leadership positions, take on more management positions. And you mentioned you know, that we're moving towards dealing with challenges in AWS, in Azure and GCP. You've seen like security, you've seen the networks evolve, you've seen security evolve. How would you describe the state of security today? I would say it's in flux. I would say that, you know, as we mentioned, things are moving over very quickly to the cloud and it's the right thing to do, not only in terms of the depreciating assets and the costs and the capital of building your infrastructure, but we're also seeing a lot of change in how we respond and what we need to respond to. So in the past, we would say, hey, security was mainly, you know, we're looking at firewalls and nothing should be able to penetrate our firewalls. And we didn't really, you know, we always had this onion approach, right? Just layers of security. And that's really not the case anymore. It's this big hodgepodge. Uh, you know, one of my friends and who I consider a mentor, Jack Roneski, he wrote this article and he called security infrastructure and, and the security organization plasma. Like it's a big box of plasma and there's energy and movement all over the place. And it's really challenging to focus on what you want to focus and where things are moving. Right now, and we mentioned this earlier, a security manager should not solely be focusing on what we believe to be the traditional security uh, focus. In other words, we don't look at just what's happening in our AD domain. We don't look at what's happening in our Okta. We don't look at what's happening even on the cloud and who's going through the firewall and, and what we consider to be IOCs for all of these things. We have to look at how the attackers are going to make money and understand where our risks are and then focus our attention on those risks. So for instance, if an attacker wants to make money by compromising our user base and all the PII, our personal identifiable information that is part of our user base, maybe selling that or targeting our users for Microsoft call center fraud hacks or whatever it needs to be, that's where you want to say, hey, I want to focus my attention there. And then also understand where fraud exists within the organization and outside of the organization even more so, so that you can get metrics for that fraud and so that you can properly respond to that fraud and have the workforce to respond to fraud and financial risk as well. So is the advice there, like identify your crying jewels first and then build up your layers of security around that? Well, yeah, good point, because we just said you know, that the onion matrix, the onion model no longer exists. So I wouldn't necessarily say identify the crown jewels, but what I would say is put on the, the black hat. Understand that, we'll take my last organization, Trip Actions. How would you make money if I wanted to attack Trip Actions? And if you don't know what the answer is, keep your eyes open and find out what the answer is once things go wrong, because eventually something's going to happen. So what mm -hmm. we had in a, a few instances, and this is not to divulge any information about trip actions whatsoever, because uh, I, I... Of course, of course. So much awful, yeah. But we had an incident where we had an unreputable person using credit cards to book travel that was perhaps not an appropriate travel, right? And the credit cards obviously turned out not, not to be theirs. And so we worked really hard and we had a, a fraud team that worked really hard to identify that 
and stop it very, very quickly. And so what we're looking at in this case is really, I try to say, how can I lose money as an organization if I don't respond to these attackers? And that's where the focus needs to be, right? So we have to build up the tools. We need to build up the manpower to focus on that effort instead of just saying, I'm going to put firewalls in and I'm going to build a SIM and I'm going to you know, have a, a few people who are doing traditional sort of uh, security operations work. That's really interesting. And that's like very much company-specific risk reduction efforts. It's not something that's applicable to everybody, but it's probably applicable to the vast majority of folks who are yeah, dealing with accepting credit cards. Or, But it feels like that's something that a lot of tooling doesn't exist for. So you have to build that up yourself. Or have you found have you find yourself trying to find the tools that are able to help you with that next gen sims or what are we what are we thinking about? Yeah, yeah. So the, that you actually hit both of it right. Next gen sims are, are clear the future. Right now, you're going to have to build a lot of it yourself, and that's very unfortunate because I would love to have a single pane of glass where I can look at you know my UK organization, my US organization, my Japan organization, and have everything understood and have one team twenty four seven to look at it. But the truth of the matter is. When you're looking at specific events that are relevant to your organization, there's no out-of-box tooling that will do that. So you have to build that up yourself. And that comes into things like logging. You know, I'm a big fan of Snowflake. And if you could you know, pull all your logs into a Snowflake database and then use certain tools to identify what the IOCs are or the attack chain for compromises are out of there, that's you know, a really smart thing to do. But if you're going to look for, and as you mentioned, I couldn't have said it better myself, you know, specific enterprise or specific company indicators, you're going to have to build a lot of that yourself. Not to discount existing SIMs, they do exactly what they're supposed to do. And, and you know, one of the big SIMs that I'm a big fan of is called Hunters, and they have it's really an AI platform. They can do a lot of that really, really well. But if there's that one indicator that is specific for your company, specific for your log type, and your company application, you're going to have to build that. And presumably when you're building or if you're purchasing a tool to, to associate it, it has to be very flexible. So it has to be, you know, able to fit your needs exactly versus, yeah, another company who may have a slightly different risk tolerance or slightly different tool set among their internal tools. You mentioned earlier that you love QRadar. You're now uh, kind of dropped that you're a huge fan of Hunters. Sim is something that's evolved a lot over the last couple of years. How have you observed that? And where do you think that's going? Yeah, so I think it's really going the AI route because there's so much going on out there for the indicators, for the attack chain, for what attacks look like. In the past, if we look at something like Splunk and if we look at something like Sumo Logic or even you know your Elk Sack and Kibana, what you're really trying to do is you're trying to identify a particular indicator and either alert on that, or if you're really clever, find other similar indicators and then create a security event based upon that. And now finding those indicators is just too challenging. What we need to do is identify what the peaks and valleys are for behavioral-based analysis. That's easier to do internally where you're looking at you know, employee breaches or employee misconduct. But when you're looking at something that's more external, like if you're working for eBay, if you're working for PayPal, like what is the very interesting, unique, never seen before attack? And how do you identify that? That really comes into where machine learning is going to be helpful for us. And another thing that's really important, and this is why the old style attack correlations aren't really helpful for us, things like Splunk, things like Sumo, is that we need to the ability to form a story. So if I have a particular event and it might be benign, it might have a particular a user go out to a domain that we know is, is a bad domain, I need to be able to easily identify what is related to that event. What else has that user done? And that's a very manual process. Has that user been targeted by phishing? Has that user, I don't know, had a, a, a particular executable he downloaded 
know, two weeks ago and was allowed to run because CS didn't understand or CrowdStrike didn't understand it properly. All these things are things that we need to form into a story to get a visualization of the attack chain and how to remediate it. And then look at, you know, even your NetFlow logs, how does that user relate to other users and, and has an attack spread across the organization? So that's why I've only seen that ability in one product, which is Hunter's. It takes a security event, which might take several hours to investigate and brings it down to, you know, a minute or two. And so uh, as someone who hires people, who hires their analysts, finding an analyst that can do that work, that understands and cares enough to do that work is, is really challenging. So getting a tool that does that for you is, is really nice for us. Awesome. And hunters.ai is the link for anybody that wants to uh, to check it out. I know we've got a, a bunch of customers in times that are using it that are very happy as well. Can I say, where do you think automation plays into that? Yeah, so you know the SOAR process or, or the, these new SOAR tools have a lot of potential, a huge amount of potential. The concern that I have with SOAR is if we allow so much of the automation to occur without our checks and balances, we can have a big problem. I can't tell you the amount of times where I've been up till four in the morning because myself or someone else did something to remediate a security alert or build something and took down an environment. And we don't want that. You need to have the proper checks and balances in place before you make any changes to the environment, whether it be a change control or you have a second set of eyes looking at it. So most, in fact, all of the SOAR tools have the ability to say, hey, don't do it yourself or don't have the tool to do it yourself. Look at everything and do it for you. And that's huge. Just the ability to say, hey, I'm going to quarantine all you know 20 computers that are related to this particular event. And the ability to do that with one click of a button is a huge, huge thing that security managers or you know the security operations center can use to stop events and to stop a risk across the organization. At the same time, if you don't properly look at that and you end up, you know, a quarantine the laptop of your CEO right about right as he's about to give a presentation to a conference, that's another issue. So you have to have an understanding of what you're really doing. You have to have someone smart looking at it. And this is where process is so important. Right. You have to have a proper change control process. In fact, I, I would say if there is one thing that IT managers can do to maintain the uptime of their environment, it's change control process. Yeah. Have the ability for somebody to say, actually, I'm going to review this before. Yeah. Before allowing it to go into production. It's yeah, absolutely critical. And I definitely agree. That's a, it's a huge challenge with a lot of vendors and a lot of processes. I think you can do it right. In fact, I'm a hundred percent confident you can do it right, but it takes effort. It takes discipline. And oftentimes when you're moving fast, you do end up breaking things. One of the things you've talked about when you were talking about Sims is the importance to have people behind it who understand those challenges and but understand the context behind that user dropping that executable, for example. You've started many security teams. You've hired a lot of people for your SOC. How do you go about keeping them happy? And how do you go about making sure that you're finding the right people for the job when it's such a challenging market for hiring and retaining security staff these days? How to best answer this, I don't have a good solution for you. In the last three months, I've lost five candidates that I was willing to overpay. And that was just bringing them on board. I've lost employees who got a certain level of skill and were able to you know, increase their salary by a third or, or more by just jumping ship. Finding the right people is unbelievably difficult. The one thing that I would say, and this is something that we're learning in a post-COVID world, is don't focus your hiring attention locally. I'm in the Bay Area. I'm in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area, California. And finding operation engineers here is, is incredibly challenging to do. And paying them is even more so. I want you to imagine a bell curve, right? 
The traditional bell curve is where, you know, if the new people at the beginning of their career are low in the line, and that's really their skill set, that's their understanding. And then they get, you know, somewhat large and then and then as they get, you know, higher on, they do something else. Well, inverse that curve when it goes to security operations, right? So people, and this is going back to their ability to or their willingness to go into security operations, young people are really willing to get into it because it could be their first job in security and they're going to learn. And then as they start to learn more and more and more, they say, hey, I want to go into cloud engineering and or this is one of the guys I lost there, or I want to go into network engineering and, and they want to specialize in that skill set. And then the ability right in the center of your people who really want to be a, or could have been a good operational analyst is really, really low. And then when they get so good in security, now they're incident response, mandiant, high-level people, then they're really not willing to work on a you know nine-to-five basis in your operations center. They're going to be working for companies like Mandiant and, and doing that. So it's really a huge challenge. So what I would say is a few things. First of all, there's a charitable organization called Year Up, Y-E-A-R-U-P. Yeah. Wow. I have had nothing but success with Year Up. If you're looking to bring people into security, and I think you could probably get some good tax deductions out of it. What Year Up does is they take extremely motivated young people from underserved communities and give them the classroom training to get into IT. And they have specializations within security. You hire them there, you bring them on as interns, and you do the same thing. So I would lead classroom training for my Europe interns and teach them how to use Kali Linux and things like that. And wonderful things are happening there. And you could form great relationships with people who then go on to become really, really wonderful engineers on, on their own. Another thing that, as we mentioned, is don't look in your area. You know, if you're in London and you want to hire someone that's going to be in the London office nine to five, your pickings are very slim. And you're going to be paying that person a huge amount of money because they're living in London and there's not a whole lot going on in there. But if you can say, hey, you know, for in, in the US, I mentioned I'm in Silicon Valley. Hey, I'll work. I'll hire you in Minneapolis. I'll hire you in Texas. I don't care where you are. And I don't care about the time zone difference because we know what you're going to end up doing and you will speak to me and, and I'll work around your schedule. That's what I would do for them as well. In terms so, of keeping them, be a good person, right? Show compassion. People don't leave their jobs. They leave their managers. Uh, one thing that I really make an effort for is, is be compassionate and train them and mentor them. Yeah, give them training opportunities, give them the opportunity to work on some of the, the fun things in security because security can be really fun. Uh, can be an incredibly rewarding if you've got the career growth opportunities that are available. And it's a lot easier when, you, when you're in a fast growing organization where you are able to, you know, pay them more, give them promotion opportunities as well. It can be certainly challenging when the budget's not there, but salaries are going up, I suppose. Along those same lines, another topic that's very important these days is burnout and mental health of security analysts. In your career, what have you seen done that addresses these concerns in a positive way? What I try to do is I really make sure that as a security manager, I can take over some of the workload. If someone's working too hard, if they're you know working nonstop on an eight-hour shift, I need to know that's happening. I need to know what they're doing and take that workload off them. It's also important to have, you know, kind of a hope for the future. And we talked about training. We talked about understanding where their career growth is and work towards that. My ego, my id, whatever you want to call it. I take huge amount of pleasure in watching people succeed. And people who I brought on, especially people from year up, if I can bring them on and they're, you know, even struggling to find a car to get to work and, you know, five years later, they're making, you know, six figure salaries. I consider that to be a huge win, not only for them, for me, for the organization. And so having a person where this is, where they clearly see what's in front of them and they are working towards this goal for a better life, 
a lot of other things that would be upsetting for them go kind of by the wayside. So if they're not being treated well at the organization, there's no opportunity for advancement. One of the things I remember, I'm not going to tell the organization it was, but the organization would have company-wide parties and IT was ever invited, right? Yeah. It was like, I guess we're not part of this. How far could you go without us? You couldn't sell a single product without us. So what are you going to do about that? That's always really, really important. I would say that kind of goes the, the most of it. Make sure that they're not overworked. If they are, step in as a manager. As a manager, you should know how to do the job, right? You should know and you should be able to train them. And then make sure that they have something to work towards and move on to. It's really interesting that you you kind of mentioned that the party aspect there. One of the things that I find is that, you know, security operations teams and IT operations teams, they work on shifts as well. So, you know, if a CEO says, hey, folks, you know, take the Friday off or take, you know, Friday afternoon and finish early, uh, you know, every Friday, it's a great perk. It's like, well, that doesn't quite work for uh, for this team over here because the attackers aren't, you know, logging off at 5 p.m. on a Friday. In fact, quite the contrary, yeah. 5 p.m. the Friday, that's when they're launching a lot of their attacks because they know that they won't be seen until, you know, 1 a.m. or 1 p.m. on the Monday morning when you get around to looking at those attacks that took place over the weekend. So it's really hard. You kind of mentioned you were a psychology major as well. Does that give you any insight into how, I suppose, the minds of security analysts and how resilient they can be or any tips for resilience around that? Oh, absolutely. You know, as I was getting my degree in security, I was working a lot with adult schizophrenics and I was working with what we call SCD children, severely emotionally disturbed children. Let me go back a little bit and talk about another thing I'm doing. My wife is a yoga instructor and she does a lot of yoga practices and she has brought a lot of that into the household. And there's something that in both aspects that we do is called holding space, right? And what we do when we hold space is it's an active listening and there's also a bit of a silence. So we just let people talk. In the past, and this goes for almost everyone, if you're not really familiar with, with these processes or, or these skills of, of active listening, almost all conversations is, oh, well, I did that. Oh, tell me what's going on. Oh, I know how you feel. I feel the same way because this is what's happening to me. That's not what people want to hear. And what we really try to do is just understand and listen without judgment what's happening for a person, whether it be in their personal life or how their personal life is affecting their work and security operations. And after they're done, after they've, they've made that piece, work with them to find solutions to whatever they're having, right? So that's what it comes down to. People really need to feel listened to, not just as a manager, but in interpersonal relationships. They want to feel listened to and they want to know that you understand what's happening and work to fix it. And you can do that. So much of management, especially executive management, is the exercise of compassion. And uh, understand that and work toward that from a personal aspect. As you said earlier, you know, you don't really leave the job or not always anyway, you leave the manager. And yeah, if you're able to be compassionate, then it sounds like, yeah, it will, uh, it certainly will help you in your career and be able to help you uh, retain those staff and yeah, have a better place to work. So obviously you've led teams in a large number of organizations and at fast growing tech companies. What's the number one piece of advice you'd give to our listeners who are starting out on their journey leading these security teams? Uh, just one? <laughs> well, you can uh, give as many as you like, the more the merrier. Sure. So the first one that I would do, and, and this is where I see failure more often than not, is understand the culture of the company from the very top down. There's a difference between working for a company ran by very freedom, libert, or kind of, I want to say libertarian ass, or focused people who say, let the engineers and developers do anything they want. They could install anything they want versus if you're working for Lockheed Martin, where 
you know, you're going to have to talk to the FBI if you installed adware or something. So understand the culture of the company. That's the biggest thing that I would say that needs to go within your, as you're building the security operations center. And the next thing I would say is understand the risks, understand your risk model and the tools that you have spread across your organization or that you don't have spread across your organization. That will help you build your operations tooling. If you're purely in a zero-centric model, and you're really hot on a particular product that has no plugins for Azure, don't do that, right? Have an open mind and say, hey, you know, maybe if I, I'm using an old quality SIM and they don't understand Azure very well, I'm going to ignore how much I love that SIM and focus on what is appropriate for the organization that I'm into. Work towards the flow of the organization as well. So this isn't necessarily culture, but this is really understanding. And it goes back to tooling as well. The organization is moving in this direction. They are bringing on these products as part of their application, as part of how they're going to start implementing revenue or creating revenue. Work towards that. Help with that effort. Don't be the stick in the mud. And all security guys at some point have to say, no, we're not doing that. I'm security. I can make these decisions. The answer is no. Work towards helping the organization grow and the training of your people and the implementing of tools to support the rest of the organization that will eventually create revenue and income. I love it. Security is a top line rather than a bottom line as well, that you can you can add to the value of the company rather than just being a defender. I suppose you've seen security evolve. We've talked a lot about tooling that's evolved. We've talked a lot about the changes to our sims, changes to our network, changes to teams. Five years from now, what do you think security operations teams and security operations centers will look like? Oh, geez. You know, I think we need to talk more about the AI componentry of it. And that's just getting started. I'm really excited about how AI can help identify what is abnormal within an organization, even though other tools may not be able to, existing tools or even existing clients can't can't be able to. I think that as that grows, as the CPU grows, as the ability to ingest massive data lakes and understand what's normal and what isn't, and then implement that into a really sophisticated advanced SOAR platform that could give you a story and remediation right there for someone to click the button and say, yes, I agree with. I think that's really where it's going to. I think where it's not going to is really what we're doing right now, where we need a lot of analysts because we just don't have them. You know, what is a necessity increase innovation? And we need people, we need someone to fulfill this role and, and we're not getting those people. And when we do, they they oftentimes say, hey, I can make more money doing something else and, and they move that, that uh, direction. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Definitely agree. Some tools, some AI tools have a huge amount of promise. How do you evaluate them? How do you go about finding whether or not they work? Because it feels like sometimes they're a black box, obviously, but uh, there's some that have better reputations than others, I suppose. How do you find the good ones or how do you tell the good from the bad there? I'll answer that in two ways. The first way, what we don't do is, and I don't want to upset anyone on the, on the show. No, of or, course, yeah. Uh, don't look at the Gardner charts. <laughs> okay. I've had no success there. Really know what a baseline is across your organization, even with existing legacy tools, with log correlation tools, understand the baseline, and then create a POC, a proof of concept that can measure against that baseline. So if I have a baseline that says, you know, I can easily understand if someone's installing malware, I can easily understand if someone's going out to inappropriate websites and can pull off ILCs like virus total and say, you know, these are particular ILCs that may be wrong. That's my baseline, right? And that's relatively easy to build an environment that does that. Yeah, absolutely. And then you take the same log data and put it into this AI platform and can it do the same? And if it's not doing the same, does it have a good reason to do that? 
And if it's not doing, and you can't find the reason why it's not pulling the same or doesn't believe this is a important or not important, then it, you know, it's not a, a good product. A lot of the behavioral analytics AIs that are coming out or that have been out for quite some time now. You know, I've, a, I POC'd them and, and wasn't super impressed. And a lot of it has to go into, we talked about this on another synth, how well it, it understands the data, right? Because we're looking at log correlation. Does a tool understand the, the similarities between an AD log and a DNS log? Does it understand the similarities between someone logging into uh, AD and logging into Okta? Can it make those correlations? And a lot of that from a, a programming standpoint for what the sim manufacturers are doing, the sim developers are doing is the manual process for them. Mm-hmm. So that's how I would look at it. Understand a baseline, do a POC, and see if you're happy with how it compares to what you're doing with traditional tools. Yeah, but you have to do a very rigorous POC in order to make sure that it actually, uh, it actually works. I love it. Exactly. Yeah. Aaron, I'm afraid that's all we're going to have time for today. But if people want to follow you and follow your journey, what's the best way to do it? <laughs> well, you know, I'm a, a very private person, so I don't have an Instagram account. I don't have a Facebook account. But please uh, join me on LinkedIn. Uh, my uh, profile name is Aaron Cooper, C-I-S-S-P. Find me there and I'll be sure to add you as a member. And you can follow me on, on LinkedIn as well and find some of my speeches, uh, writings and so on. Ah, well, thank you so much for joining us. I hope we have you on again in the future. I hope so too. Thank you, Thomas. Thanks for listening to the Future of Security Operations podcast by Tynes. If you enjoyed today's show, please do us a favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast platform. For additional episodes, visit tynes.com slash podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about how Tynes Automation Platform can transform your security operations team, visit tynes.com. Thanks again, and I'll catch you on the next episode.